before we look into God's word. Heavenly Father, it's so good to be able to gather together with brothers and sisters and friends of the truth to look into thy timeless word. We pray that as we have sung together, we would never leave the Bible, that it would be the guide for youth and the safe staff for old age, that we would consider the wisdom that is contained there and order our lives accordingly. Be with those that could not gather with us. We know there are many that have issues and uh, sickness and uh, their own personal struggle, struggles, Heavenly Father. And we know that thy spirit is not bound, uh, neither confined to this place, but thou art able also to minister wherever that soul may be. And so, Heavenly Father, we want to lift up in prayer unto thee those that are sick, those that are struggling, those that are going through difficulties. We also want to pray for those that are persecuted. We know... Uh, Situations being what they are in, in the Middle East, especially many that name the name of Christ are suffering severe persecution as a result. Heavenly Father, be gracious unto them. Preserve them and provide for them as they spread thy word in very, very difficult and different circumstances than we find ourselves in. Be with us now, and we pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. <coughs> With the Lord's help for this morning, morning's meditation, I'd like to turn to the fourth chapter of Paul's letter to the Galatians. Galatians chapter 4. <coughs> I'd actually like to begin reading a little bit in chapter 3. So if you'd like to turn to Galatians 3, starting with the 24th verse. Wherefore, the law was our schoolmaster to bring us unto Christ, that we might be justified by faith. But after that faith is come, we are no longer under a schoolmaster. For ye are all the children of God by faith in Christ Jesus. For as many of you as have been baptized into Christ have put on Christ, there is neither Jew nor Greek, there is neither bond nor free, there is neither male nor female, for ye are all one in Christ Jesus. And if ye be Christ's, then are ye Abraham's seed and heirs according to the promise. Now I say that the heir, as long as he is a child, differeth nothing from a servant, though he be Lord of all but is under tutors and governors until the time appointed of the Father. Even so we, when we were children, were in bondage under the elements of the world. But when the fullness of the time was come, God sent forth his Son, made of a woman, made under the law, to redeem them that were under the law, that ye might receive the adoption of sons. And because ye are sons, God has sent forth the Spirit of his Son, into your hearts, crying, Abba, Father. Wherefore, thou art no more a servant, but a son. And if a son, then an heir of God through Christ. I'd like to stop reading with the seventh verse. The Lord is worthy that we kneel to pray. 
Holy Father in heaven, as we bow before thee this morning hour, <coughs> we humble ourselves before thee, dear Father. We realize just what a great uh, difference in nature there is between us, human beings, flesh and blood, inconstant, changeable, from one moment to the next, who don't even know our own minds fully, and the, the omnipotent, all-powerful God who never changes, the one who sees all things, the one who is true and faithful, pure, holy, and just. Dear Father, and at, at a moment like this, we, if we did not have Jesus Christ, we would quail, we would, we would turn away, we would, we would run, dear Father, but we have the one who has bridged the gap, the one who is God and who is man, the one who has come down to earth, has experienced all that we have experienced, has laid down his own life, and now is sitting at thy right hand, a man just like us, but yet also the Son of God, sitting at the right hand of the Father in heaven, interceding for us. And dear Father, it is a glorious thing. It is amazing revelation that, that reveals even more of thy character and the fullness of thy character, thy love that has been poured out in Jesus Christ, that has been revealed in him, in his willingness, his sacrifice, his daily life here below, and his ultimate act of, of love on the cross. So, dear Father, this morning hour, as we lift up thy name, as we extol the great and glorious God, the, the God who has created everything, who has formed all things, who has spoke everything into being and into existence, we also do this. We glorify thee through Jesus Christ, through the great promise, the inheritance that has been given to us in him, that we now too can be sons of the almighty God, dust of the earth, man that is nothing, that, that comes from nothing and returns to nothing, uh, has been redeemed we who have immortal souls can live eternally with thee. Dear Father, we thank thee for this truth that's been revealed in the pages of the Bible, these books that we have in our pews and hopefully have in our homes and have, hopefully have close at hand, dear Father, but we know they're more than just pages, they're more than just words on a page, dear Father, they're the living word of God that will never be extinguished until thou wilt return. Dear Father, we pray that thy word would continue to go out, that kingdoms uh, of, of the evil one would fall before it, that hearts and um, strongholds, even that are in this very room, this, this moment would fall under the power of thy word, would be, would be broken, would be changed, dear Father. They would, could see the truth and it would change them as it would change all of us, we pray this. Dear Father, we pray for the the brother that is to divide this word, give him wisdom and give him clarity of, of thought and clarity of speech to explain this word and also to listen to the Holy Spirit as each one of us listens to the spoken word and in turn listens to the Holy Spirit as he speaks to us. Dear Father, we pray for thy word as it goes out everywhere, all the speakers of it, all the preachers of it. We know that this is the means of salvation that thou hast appointed to foolishness of preaching that souls would be, believe and, and hearts would be changed. We pray, dear Father, for those that are not within the hearing of thy word today, those that wanted to be, those that were bound by the flesh, uh, many in our own congregation and uh, in other congregations that we know of elsewhere, 
those that are running from thee, dear Father, those that know there is a, a speaking of thy word, that there is a gathering uh, in truth and in spirit and are turning from it and, and think that there are better things or think that perhaps that they're unworthy. Speak to them, dear Father, to, to their hearts even at this moment. Dear Father, as we pray these things, we give thee thanks for the opportunity we have. This is a good land. This is a good time, dear Father, and we don't wish to uh, be slothful Dear Father, about the opportunities we've been given to propagate thy word and to teach our children and to uh, bring friends and neighbors to the truth. Help us, dear Father, to be diligent, to be zealous, to be motivated by love and appreciation and gratitude for thee. Dear Father, we thank thee in the name of Jesus Christ, who has done so much for us. Amen. Forgive me, I've got a little bit of a <clears throat> tickle in my throat. The last um, couple weeks, as you know, we were away from Toronto and visiting in the States. And had the opportunity to be in a couple of different congregations. And it's interesting how our memories work. Um, <clears throat> number of sermons, but the things that stuck out in my mind were from the two different Bible classes that I had the opportunity to attend. And it was for some very, there's some very interesting perspectives that came out of those Bible classes, and, and um, they seem to be contained in Galatians uh, 4, 3 and 4, the, the section that we've, we've read together. And with the Lord's help, I'd like to expound a little bit on that. One of the things that we talked about, and it began the, uh, the Sunday before Christmas, the fourth verse of the fourth chapter says, But when the fullness of the time was come, God sent forth his Son, made of a woman, made under the law. And that was something that um, obviously tied in with the Christmas season, we talk about the, the, the season of Christ's birth, though whether or not it was on the 25th is, um, you know, we don't really discuss that. We don't know exactly the day, but we know that it was in the fullness of time. It was at the precise moment that God ordained uh, that he should send his son. And then the other part was the verse following, to redeem them that were under the law that ye might receive the adoption of, of sons. And this idea of adoption is something that we discussed uh, over uh, in, the, in the first Bible class and some of the thoughts I think spilled over into the second. <coughs> On my wife's side of the family, uh, one of her cousins uh, has, uh, their family has adopted, I think, two, three children into their, into their family. So they have, uh, as it were, a blended family. And the interesting thing about that family is that if you look at their Christmas card or a picture of their family or if you see them all together, the children are a little different. One of them looks like he could be their own son. There's, it's really interesting that there's, a, there's kind of a family, almost like a family resemblance. You would think that maybe that was one of their biological children. The middle one could be, 
she looks a little different. And then the third one is uh, she's, a, she's a mixed race girl, and so she obviously is not from that family. And the situation at the churches, in the churches of Galatia was an interesting one. There was a mix. It was a blended family as well, a mix of Jews and Gentiles with different backgrounds and different upbringings. And so the Apostle Paul took the time to lay all this out, and he identifies the common uniting element in this new family. And I'd like to spend some time this morning looking at that with the Lord's help and hopefully by his spirit as we, as we would talk about these things. I recommend that you read the entire book. Uh, Paul does a, a masterful job of laying out the purpose of the law and uh, the, the progression, and we're just picking up part of it. <coughs> Wherefore the law was our schoolmaster to bring us unto Christ that we might be justified by faith. But after that faith has come, we are no longer under a schoolmaster. For ye are all the children of God by faith in Christ Jesus. The Jewish nation had a long and a proud history of being identified as the people of God. They claim that identity today. That's still... Um, their, their, their defining characteristic, the people that were chosen by God. You don't get to choose your biological children. They're given to you. You have no choice. I heard a story once about a wealthy man in England, a very wealthy man, and he and his wife had no children. So they decided that they would go to the orphanage and select a son. So they went there and they went through a number of interviews and looked at all of the children there. And from there they narrowed it down to five. Five young boys. And the husband says to the wife, we have funds enough. Money is not a problem. Why don't we take them all? And the mother says, yes, but who will raise them? Let's just pick one. So she picked, or they together picked one of these boys to be the son. And they, they raised him as their own. Gave him the best opportunities. Sent him off to a, a private school where he was raised. And uh, even among that select peer group, among those boys at the school, he was notable for coming from an extremely wealthy family. And one day, as boys often do, they got into an argument, and one of the boys says, that man you call father, he's not your father. And the young boy said, take that back. He said, no, I won't. He says, take that back or I'm going to punch you. And the other boy says, doesn't matter if you punch me, it's still true. When the young boy went home on, on, on break, on, they have uh, terms at the term end, he went home. And he came home and the father noticed the son was a little different. 
He said, Daddy, I want to talk to you. I said, okay, let's talk. So they went into his study, shut the door. He says, what's, what's bothering you, son? He says, are you my father? He says, why would you ask something like that? He says, are you my father? And the father says, why, why are you asking? He says, well, one of the boys at school said, you're not my daddy. I said, okay. Let me explain how you came to be my son. And he told him about the story and how he was adopted. And he says, come over with me to the window now. Their house was a grand English manor up on a hill. He said, look out the window now. Do you see those knitting mills there? Those are mine. You know that nice vacation house we have? That's mine too. I have ships that you don't know of. I have other business interests and investments which you don't know. All of that will be yours. When I gave you my name, I gave you all of those things. So you go back to your friend and you tell him, when he was born, his parents had to take him. But you were the pick of 500 boys. The idea of adoption there is something very interesting. Because as we talked about adoption in Bible class, some, some interesting things came out. One of the brothers there, he had been in a family where two children had been adopted into the family, and that adoption didn't work out so well. The children rebelled against, they were adopted at an older age, which maybe had something to do with it. They rebelled against the family order. They rebelled against the love that were shown to them by the parents and by the church. And eventually they left. And he hadn't had contact with them in decades. What, what happened? Why was it that the people that had been chosen by God ended up rejecting him? And what made the difference for those that were now part of the family of God, as Paul describes? God says in the Old Testament that he put his name on the children of Israel. That was the first covenant. That was the adoption ceremony, as it were. He put his name on them. They were called by his name. But that did not mean that they had received a change of nature. In an adoption, you can't change the genetics of the child. The child is who they are. They are born to their biological parents. You can change their identity by adopting them and putting your name on them, but that doesn't necessarily change who they are inside. And so that first covenant, that first adoption, <coughs> was insufficient. It was not enough. And God already knew that. That was not a mistake on his part. 
He told his people, his covenant people in the Old Testament, that he was going to make a new covenant with them. And that covenant wouldn't be an outward one, but would be an inward one. That he would put his law not on tables of stone, but on their hearts. It would change their very nature. And I think in Christianity, we've forgotten somewhat about that truth, and we've perhaps made the same mistake that the children of Israel made, which was focusing on the things that are on the outside and not realizing what needs to happen inside. In order for an adoption to be successful, I think, from both sides, there must be a willingness and there must be a change on the inside. And Paul explains how God did this for the, these churches in Galatia. We who are Jews by nature and not sinners of the Gentiles, knowing that a man is not justified by the works of the law, but by the faith of Jesus Christ, even we have believed in Jesus Christ, that we, that we might be justified by the faith of Christ and not by the works of the law, for by the works of the law shall no flesh be justified. That is the first thing we need to each discover if we are really to become a son or a daughter of God. That works and externals don't cut it. They are not enough. You will find that out very quickly if you sincerely try to reform your own life. And the interesting thing is, even as believers, sometimes we slip back into this habit, thinking that as long as the outside is okay, I'm okay. Listen to what um, Paul says in the second chapter. For if I build again the things which I destroyed, I make myself a transgressor. When we forget that we cannot be justified by the law, really, more broadly, by our works, when we forget that, we become a transgressor. We now end up breaking the law. Sounds odd, doesn't it? But the scriptures hath concluded all under sin that the promise by faith of Jesus Christ might be given to them that believe. It had to be this way. It had to be this way that there would be no barrier to the full adoption that God had in mind for all of us. God didn't try to redeem just a select few. In the end, he wasn't really interested in just one nation. The promise was made to Adam at the very beginning. And so the solution also had to be a universal one. It had to be for all. And the way that that solution was going to work was going to be through faith. It could be seen in the Old Testament as a, as a, as a silver cord that went through the whole, the whole of the Old Testament. Those that believed were really the ones that were closest to God, not the ones that had the most religious outside observance. But what makes the difference? What is it 
about faith that prepares us for that complete adoption, not just an outward change of name, but a complete adoption. What is it? I've said it before. I believe faith is the response of the humble heart to the grace of God. When we realize that we ourselves are nothing, we're just only one of 500 boys that don't have parents, as it was in the story of the, the man who adopted from that orphanage. That boy had nothing that he could point to to recommend himself over his peers in that orphanage. When we realize that, and we realize the incredible goodness that would cause a man who had everything to to go to that particular orphanage and select one of those boys and to be the one selected. Think about it now from the perspective of that son. To be the one selected for such a special life of privilege in spite of the fact that he had no credentials. You know, that's what God is looking for in us. That's the type of faith that sees the good, incredible goodness of God and realizes how much he did for us and how little we had, really nothing, empty hands. The goodness was all on his side. To trust that goodness. You know, think about for a moment that boy going in to talk to his father in the study. There was something underlying that conversation. There was a trust in the goodness of the father that had adopted him. He didn't say, well, don't let this secret out. He might throw me out. He trusted in the, in the character of the father, that he had an explanation for him, and that there was goodness in that man. And he wanted to know why this seemed to be out of character, why, the, why it seemed that, the, that his, his father, who he trusted, had deceived him. But he trusted in his goodness. Faith is only the preparation. It's the necessary thing that pleases God. But the fulfillment of the covenant came in chapter 4. And because ye are sons, God has sent forth the spirit of his Son into your hearts, crying, Abba, Father. To call one father that we have no right to call father. The spirit of the son. I think we've become, you know, I think I said it before from this pulpit, but it bears repeating. The most powerful truths of scripture, Satan does his, his, his hardest to scare us away from. Because they're powerful. And he does this, I think, with the doctrine of the infilling of the Holy Spirit of God, that the Spirit of the Son takes up residence inside the believer. That is an incredibly powerful truth that I know I don't fully utilize, and perhaps you feel the same thing. The Spirit of the Son inside of me. What does that mean? What should I look like if that's true of me? 
You know, if you were to say to someone in our church, I really want to be filled with the Holy Spirit. I want to be completely full of the Holy Spirit. You probably would have some questions asked of you. What do you mean by that? We're a little bit leery of some of that. Perhaps having seen where things have gone with the charismatic movement and some of the excess and, and, and even silliness that kind of comes with some of that, where people try to deceive even, deceive others, that they themselves are filled with the Spirit of God because there's a lot of noise. I once heard it said, there was a man talking with a pastor and he said to him, he says, you don't have the Holy Spirit here in this church. And the pastor said, what do you mean? He says, oh, well, there's no, there's no, there's no excitement. People aren't jumping up and down and making noise. And he says, oh, I think I understand the problem. You don't have the Holy Spirit. You have the noisy spirit. Because the Holy Spirit produces holiness. That's what the Holy Spirit produces. And then he said to him, have you come to my house? Have you spoken with my wife? Have you seen how I conduct my business affairs? Have you seen how I am when I'm alone? Then how can you know that I don't have the Holy Spirit just by the fact that I don't make as much noise as you do. So what does a Holy Spirit-filled believer look like? The answer is very simple. Look to Jesus. The Spirit of the Son, it's even called here. The Spirit of the Son. You want to see what a Holy Spirit-filled man looks like? Look at Jesus. Everything he did, the way he was, the way he spoke with people, the way people responded to him. That's what a Holy Spirit-filled believer looks like. That's what we should look like. We all like to make excuses for ourselves. And this being the time of year where New Year's resolutions are in vogue. Perhaps the only New Year's resolution that's really worth making for this year for the believer is I want to cultivate that relationship with the Holy Spirit of God. I want to know not only that he is in me, that he's directing me, and that I have a friendship and a closeness with him. Think about this for a moment. I just finished reading a book not that long ago called The Forgotten God. It's talking about specifically about the Holy Spirit. And I had to say to myself, I, when I was reflecting on that, on that truth, and it's not a new one that I've come across, I'm comfortable, as much as I can say that, with the idea of God the Father. And I'm comfortable with the idea of God the Son. But the one that I perhaps know least of the Trinity is the Holy Spirit. And isn't that ironic? Because he's supposed to be the one that's actually in me. Have you thought about that, brother and sister? The God that is supposed to be in you, the part of the Godhead that is most intimate with you, is perhaps the one we know the least about. In a practical, in a real way. And Satan has hoodwinked us into looking at externals as, as, as the mark of, of the Spirit of God or not, 
and we forgot to look inside. Spirit is the only thing that can penetrate spirit. Right now I'm standing in this pulpit. There's only room for one here. If my brother were to try to take my place, I would have to move. He would displace me. But spirit isn't like that. My spirit, my personality, can be so totally invaded by the Spirit of God that people can see God in me. That is a big idea. In fact, I will even say that is the unique idea of Christianity. That is, the, is, the, is, is the, at least to my mind, the truth that separates us from every single other religion. Other religions have this idea of sin, guilt, and sacrifice, and payment. That's not new, if I can use those, that word to Christianity. But the idea that God can dwell inside of you, penetrate but not displace your personality, that's, that's big. That's an idea that I haven't tapped yet. And so I invite all of you, brothers and sisters, to perhaps make that a New Year's resolution for yourself this upcoming year. It's been, you know, we have good teaching on the Holy Spirit. When the questions are asked on Proving Night, we, we, we are very careful to distinguish the, fact, the point that, that the Holy Spirit is not an it, he is a person. And he is a person of the Godhead. But if you want to have a relationship with a person, what do you do? It's not enough to have that person standing next to you and just dragging him around with you wherever you go. No, there's a relationship that needs to be cultivated. When you hurt another person, you have to repent. You have to restore that relationship. That requires effort. Do we understand that? Do we appreciate that? Do we seek to cultivate that relationship more than any other relationship we have? Or are we more interested with the personalities that are in the news or in movies or on social media? Are those the personalities that we find fascinating? Or is it the personality of the one who came to dwell within us that's captivating? that we want to be with, that we want to know better. You can read plenty of books about the Holy Spirit and be no closer to him. And I'm not here to advertise reading books, per se. But cultivating a relationship with, with the God who lives inside of you, that is of utmost important, importance. Wherefore thou art no more a servant, but a son, and if a son, then an heir of God through Christ. Think about those words for this upcoming year. Think about what that really means. Think about what was done for you and who you are to be. Seek to be filled with the Spirit of God. May the Lord add whatever was lacking. Amen. Would a brother please select a hymn? 
many of you know that our young brother from the Richmond Hill Church, Peter Vronkovich, was diagnosed with cancer a number of months ago and has gone through intense chemotherapy. Thank God he's doing better, and there was a letter that he wrote uh, and sent out, and for those that don't receive the emails, I thought it would be good that, we would, uh, that I would read it for all of you. Dear loved ones, greetings in the Lord. I can gladly express that after three months of not being able to attend Sunday service or midweek singing, I'm thankful to God that my family and I were able to attend church this past Sunday to fellowship and worship with our brothers and sisters as well as friends and family. With the Lord's help, this past week I finished my fourth and final session of chemotherapy. Thank God I'm feeling much better and I'm slowly regaining my strength day by day. The doctors are happy with my progressive recovery so far and informed me what will happen next. On January 6th, I will have a CT scan and my hope and prayer, Lord willing, is that the scan reveals that I am cancer free. Please continue to keep me in your prayers for full healing from this sickness. I would also like to thank everyone for their prayers. God has answered many of them during this difficult trial, and I know he will continue to hear and answer many more. I'm also grateful for the love everyone has shown me with words of comfort through visits, texts, emails, and cards during this challenging time. Please continue to keep my family and me in your thoughts and prayers. Love, your brother in Christ, Peter Vronkovich. In about a month or so, we'll be having the midwinter sing here. The theme of the sing, if you haven't heard yet, is fully man and fully God. That one has always been a problem for me in the sense of trying to think what that must be like. I accepted it. But what does it mean? It wasn't until I I realized what it meant for spirit to penetrate spirit. Do you realize that Christ had a personality as a man? Think about that for a moment. A man with likes and opinions and views on things. But his personality was so infused with the personality of God that he could be 100% man and 100% God at the same time. That's big. That's what God has in mind for each of us. Now you also see, perhaps, why Christ, even though he was 100% God and 100% man, spent so often in prayer. I think a better understanding of the Holy Spirit results in a deeper prayer life. It has to. Because the Spirit of the Son cries out to the Father. These go together. This is not some noisy thing. This isn't just even a, some kind of a, a supernatural power. There, there are many charlatans that use the name of Christ and make out that they have some kind of special power from God to heal. And there's been exposés on them showing them to be liars. That's not the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit is one who's 
personality has been so completely invaded by God that others see God in us. And that is a powerful truth. That is a truth that the world does not understand. If we were, if Christ was to enter these doors this morning, no one would feel uneasy unless perhaps you had some unrepented sin or something in your life that you were ashamed of. But no one would feel uneasy with him. The sinners, the, the harlots, the publicans, the worst of the society rejoiced to be in his presence. Those that came sincerely to him always found a welcome, whether they were a, a, a chief Pharisee like Nicodemus or the rich young ruler or even the mothers with their little children. Someone <coughs> who is filled with the Holy Spirit will not be off-putting to those that are sincere and honest and looking for truth. Think of what a powerful witness this world would see if each and every believer that's gathered here this morning were to exhibit the same degree of being filled with the Spirit as, you know, perhaps Christ is too much for you, but even someone like the Apostle Paul. It wasn't audacity, it wasn't pride that made him say, follow me as I follow Christ. He realized his limitations. He realized, I mean, think about that that man, you know, often we make excuses perhaps for a bad temper. Paul talks about his life before he knew Christ. He says, and I was exceedingly mad against them, talking about the believers, like crazy, crazy mad. That defined his life before. But when the Holy Spirit invaded his personality, what a gentleness came out of him. Think about the believers in Corinth that he spoke to that were boasting themselves of gifts and other sort of ridiculousness. He could have cut them down to size like that. His knowledge, his ability, his, his record as an apostle, all he would have to do would be to remove his toga and show him the marks on his back that he received for Christ. That should have been credentials enough. But he said, who is Paul? Who is Apollos that you would take the name of a man? Follow Christ. Christ said many shocking things, but one of them that I'm, I'm, I'm still trying to get my head around, I guess, is the promises that he made about the, his, the Spirit of God coming. He said not only is it needful for him to go that the Spirit would come, but that it would be better for them that he leave this earth so they could receive the Holy Spirit. Can you imagine that? Who wouldn't want to have Christ with them, walking around with them day to day, explaining things, pointing out things, opening the, the Scriptures to us? Who wouldn't want an experience like that? But yet he says, the Spirit that is going to be sent when I leave is better 
than having me next to you because he will be in you. That's a truth that I think the church has perhaps forgotten, definitely is not fully exercising today. I look at my own life and I see the problems there too, brother and sister. I don't claim to stand here as one that fully exhibits a spirit-filled life. I'm keenly aware of my flaws. But with the Lord's help, this year, I want to cultivate that relationship that should be more important to me than any other relationship here below. I would pray that the Lord would fill you with that same longing, that same desire. And for those of you that don't know him, what's it like? It's like never having to be alone. There's such a blessing in that, I, I can't even properly describe it to you. But I remember when we were up in Killarney with the young people, and I looked up at all those stars, and I thought about how small I am, not only in, in view of the stars, but just even within the size of the park that I was in, or the globe that I was on, or the, even the, the small galaxy that's one of, I don't know, a quarter billion galaxies. Think how small I am. And yet I didn't feel alone or small. Because the God who made all of this was inside of me. To be filled, what does that mean? I think of it like this. You can take a bucket and you can put it on water and it floats. It's, it's in the water. But if you want the bucket to be filled, it has to go deeper in the water than that. It has to overcome the natural resistance of its buoyancy that fights against it. But when it does, it can be filled. It can be in. It's not like the bucket disappears. It doesn't vanish. It's just completely filled. And the deeper it goes, think of all that water above, too, to be immersed in God. I think that's what it is. But we, we fight it. There's a natural buoyancy in our nature that resists that, that doesn't like the idea of that displacing. Seek for the filling that others may see God in you. May the Lord add whatever was lacking. This concludes our service. Amen.